CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Time in the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, June 4th, 2021. Headline in my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered every day. Independence Day comes a little early. Chicago to fully reopen with the rest of Illinois on June 11th as Lightfoot ditches July 4th date. Ah, we'll get into Lori, a little Lori Lightfoot stuff. Chicagoans love that powerful mayor. Just say, that's it. We're going back now. That's it. It's over. Pandemic's over. I'm the mayor. I'm more important than a pandemic. Anyway, uh, with me to discuss this and all the news of the day, one of our most popular guests. Without further ado, I'll ask my distinguished, most popular guest to introduce herself. Go ahead, popular guest. Ramana Hussein. I'm an assistant metro editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. And she's also a columnist. I always throw that in there. If I was the man ruling the world, she'd be a full-time columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. But I'm not the man ruling the world. I'm just a guy in front of a microphone in my attic overlooking an alley. All right, uh, Ramada, so much to discuss. We already we spent like 45 minutes doing our pre-show uh, planning and discussion. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this one. Naomi Osaka, the great tennis player, who uh, pulled out of the French Open this week because she did not want to uh, have to deal with the press uh, on a daily basis. And uh, I'm all over the map on this one, Ramana. On one hand, feel tremendous amount of sympathy toward her. Uh, and I, I have my own issues with the press that I'm kind of working out. Uh, at the same time, just everybody's always beating up the press. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I feel yeah. like I can beat up the press because I'm part of the press. Uh, then, you you know, it's just like uh, coming off of fake news and Trump. And, uh, I'm just a little hesitant to join the fray. Your thoughts on all this. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I have the same kind of thoughts you do. Um, you know, journalists always want to talk to their sources or they want to talk to the people who are involved in the stories that they're writing. So I can understand that, you know, sports reporters want to talk to the subjects that are involved in these competitions that are involved in these games. I just totally understand that. Um, but I also sympathize with uh, Naomi Osaka as well. Um, if 
those of our listeners might not have known is that she withdrew from playing in the French Open. I don't know anything about tennis. I can tell. I, I know very little about tennis. I should tell you. I once in a while, if there's a really famous player, but I, I do know not who Naomi Osaka is. I know who Serena and Venus, Venus Williams are. Um, you know John McEnroe, like when Billy Jean King. Whenever there's like a big tennis player, I do know who they are. Um, but I don't follow tennis. But um, so I knew her pulling out of the U.S. French Open was a big deal. And then I read about it. It was because, you know, she had pulled out um, a, a day be- a day after that she was fined and sanctioned with more threatens, threatened with more sanctions for not uh, speaking to the press. And, she you know, she talked a little, she had a post on social media talking about how she suffers from anxiety and that she's not very good at public speaking and how, you know, dealing with the press is really hard for her. So I did have sympathy on that end. And I do think that reporters don't necessarily always get it right. Um, and I'm someone from the press. I get very defensive when I'm with a group of my friends who aren't journalists and they start saying stuff about the press and I don't agree with them sometimes. So then I'm like defending myself and, you know, my friends who aren't journalists usually make fun of me because they say I get really defensive. Um, but I said that, you know, our profession is one of those professions where everybody thinks it's okay to rip on. I think the left and the right are both guilty politically. And uh, I have friends who tend to be on the left and they don't like the media as much as the people on the right, but they don't, they don't believe in fake. They don't use the word fake news, but they do think the media is wrong in a lot of instances. And so, you know, I'm critical of the media too. Um, I think most people in the press, a lot of people in the press who work in the press are critical of the media too. So I don't know. In general, I had sympathy for Naomi um, Osaka. I don't know how the specific reporters had dealt with her, but I do know that reporters tend can be, not all reporters, but reporters can be a little aggressive sometimes. And I don't know. I don't know if this thinking is very common with the millennials, but it certainly was with the older generation where they thought that being a jerk made you a better journalist. Um, I, when I started in journalism in the 90s, there were obviously a lot of boomers still in, in the business. And I would hear them talking about stuff that happened in the past. And, you know, some of them would just laugh about it. It was like crazy, like sexist stuff. You know, you know, someone who was an alcoholic was revered. You know, they talk about how people had like alcohol in their cabinets. And that's all journalists did all day. And, you know, being gruff was like, you know, it's like if you didn't fit that stereotype, we weren't a good journalist. So I kind of felt like for a long time, like being gruff and being like a bumbling alcoholic and, you know, being sexist was like, that was like a good journalist. And and a lot of like yeah. people from my generation would think I, I knew people who were like, you know, they tried to emulate that and they thought that being a jerk made you a better journalist. And that's not necessarily true. Um, a couple of years ago, I had com- I usually don't complain about my colleagues, but I had complained about a colleague that was very rude. I'm not going to say anybody's name, but um, my boss basically told me, oh, you know, he's just a lovable curmudgeon. And I was <laughs> I was just like, why? And then I told another friend about it, another colleague. And they're like, you know, it's not the 1940s or 1950s where being a, can I swear, where being a a-hole is makes you a better journalist and I still I think a lot of older generation people think that and there there's some people in the younger generation too who think that they think like being edgy and being like oh I'm too cool for anything like makes you a good journalist like not having any sort of empathy and I think that's one of the re- I I personally think that if you have the more empathy you have the better journalist you are because a lot of the 
a lot of the best journalists I've seen, at least people who I think are really good journalists, are people who really try to understand other individuals. So um, for me, for me, it's a little, it's a little complex. I understand Naomi Osaka's um, position, and I don't blame her for not being, um, not being, not wanting to play. And I, I do think that when she says that she suffers from anxiety, you know, I, I, I have sympathy for her because it probably is hard. Like I'm someone who likes to talk. So for me, like, that's very hard. Like, oh, you know, it's hard. But then, you know, I, I don't know. I don't understand how it would be hard for people to talk. But, you know, I have to understand that not everybody's like me and not everybody wants to talk. And it's hard for people. And just because someone's famous and is an athlete doesn't mean that they want to go in front of the press every day in front of a bunch of microphones and talk to people. Well, and, and this let's uh, it's beyond talking. So it's the specific topics that they ask you about. So for instance, in, in sports, and there's some parallels to call, uh, popular culture and movies and entertainment, et cetera, but, but definitely in sports, since the event itself is widely watched by everybody and immediately available to uh, be seen again and again on the internet, uh, what, so much of sports journalism has come down to sort of like gotcha moments. So when a Naomi Osaka comes before the press, just like when LeBron James, like last night, the Lakers lost to the Suns. So when LeBron James sits down, they're not just going to ask you, oh, LeBron, what's your feelings about uh, Joe Biden's infrastructure plan? They're going to say, well, LeBron, you, you were devastated. You lost by 20 points. Does this suggest that you are over the hill and washed up? Just think about that. At this moment of vulnerability, when you're feeling really bad about having lost a game, there's going to be the horde of these reporters going, come on, you suck. What about your teammates who choked LeBron, huh? You know what I mean? So they're not, they're not just a- asking you questions. They're looking for your most vulnerable spots, and then they're poking a stick at them. And um, <laughs> Chicago reporters are kind of say we've watched this give and take with uh, Lori Lightfoot. Remember when Lori Lightfoot, uh, the reporters, it looked like she was criticizing Kim Fox. And so the reporters are going, are you criticizing your old friend, Kim Fox? And then Lori Lightfoot gave it right back. Don't tell me what I'm doing, you troublemakers. So there is that. And I just, I don't, my attitude is those are the questions that have to be asked as difficult as they are to answer. And if you're a professional athlete, you got to deal with it. That's just the terms of the game. That's kind of how I view it. Your thoughts on that? No. And, and I, and I have to admit, like, I'm not like you where I watch sports that intensely, like you or my husband or my brother, like I watch sports, but I don't really follow the media. I don't read, uh, news stories about, uh, you know, I don't read the sports section, I should tell you that much. But I do know that um, I know that sports reporters, and you know, all reporters, we have to be aggressive. I'm not going to say that we're not supposed to be aggressive or ask the hard questions. We're not supposed to be asking softball questions. You know, our best political reporters ask the tough questions um, with politicians. So I guess sports reporters feel like they have to um, ask tough questions as well. And like I said, um, I'm not someone that follows sports, but my stereotype, and I, you know, I'm probably wrong with all my stereotypes of sports reporters is that they sit around and they scream a lot because 
my brother used to watch a lot of sports channels when I was, uh, <laughs> when we're living, you know, we're all under my parents' roof and he would watch sports TV constantly. You know, we'd be in the car and he'd turn on sports radio and, you know, they're all like kind of, it's kind of like over the top, kind of like this over, you know, macho like discussions and, you know, and I always felt like, you know, the jerkier, jerkier you are in sports, um, you know, reporting, the better you were considered. And, you know, there's a lot, I mean, I think it's kind of changed. I, I think sports reporting, I, I follow some female sports reporters and it's totally changed. And I don't know if it's because there's more women in sports, but there's a lot of women who cover sports now too. And they're just as passionate, passionate as the, you know, male reporters. And I think they've kind of changed the game a little. And maybe it's generational. I feel like it's changed a little. Like, um, you know, there's more people of color. There's more women. And I feel like it's changed. Well, I got to tell you this as a sports junkie. Uh, and by the way, I love how you added to the list of people get thrown under the bus. Usually it's just her husband, McDumkey. Every now and then I get thrown under the bus. Now her poor brother gets thrown under the bus too. By the way, uh, I doctor, as I recall, Pound for pound, the funniest doctor I've ever seen. I, his toast at Romana's wedding is still. I, every now and then I think about him. He threw, he threw the entire. You got to folks. This is just a tangent within a tangent. A, a huge banquet hall, I think in Lincolnwood, maybe Skokie. I don't know. It's that part of Lincolnwood, Skokie, where they Skokie. border each. Okay, Skokie. I always get them mixed. Anyway, huge banquet hall. Lots of journalists in this room. Okay, because Romana and Mick are journalists. The dude threw the whole freaking press corps under the bus, drove the bus back over the carcass. <laughs> I got to give him credit, man. He's a funny guy. Anyway, uh, I'm telling you, the, where, where they're at in sports right now is um, people yelling at each other. You had it right. I mean, it, they're not nice. They're not gentle. The millennials are doing this too. You, It's like, it's like a body is thrown out in, in in front of two dueling combatants, and then they rip the body apart in shreds and talk about its innards, and then they start yelling at each other and insulting each other. There's right now I, I neglected to send this to you a feud between Kwame Brown, a former NBA basketball player, and Stephen A. Smith, who's perhaps the most prominent sports personality on TV, and they're going. At it, Ramon. You would be all over this if you just if you discovered it. You know I mean? They're going at it. It's mad at each other. And a lot of it's just so over the top. This is where we're at right now in journalism. And again, I'll say this. It's not just sports. I listen to the coverage of the red carpet at the Oscars, and they are shredding these women. They're oh, like, yeah. You it's call bad. that a dress? She looks she looks like a gorilla in that thing. I mean, God damn, what did you say? So it's not just sports. I think oh, this no, is where we're no. at as a society. And, and and one of the things you should I should note about these award shows is men never get asked what they're wearing. They get asked about their body of work, and then the women come. And you know, of course, they're expected to you know wear a designer gown, but they're always just asked like, "No, what are you wearing? And what are you, where are your diamonds from?" And so, yeah, the questioning is very um, very sexist as well. And um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I have watched some of those shows where they pick apart like people's outfits when they're wearing something that's non-traditional. And I'm not going to say that I didn't take delight in it because sometimes it is fun to see who's the worst, quote unquote, worst dress or best dress. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you know, just because someone's a celebrity or, or an athlete, they are human beings. I think that's one thing that um, people tend to forget. I mean, 
Um, Mick was pointing out to me that recently um, they were throwing bottles at uh, bottles at NBA players, and um, it was uh, kind of driven. It was kind of very. I guess the players felt like it said that it was racist, and it probably was. I, I don't I'm not denying what they said, and I was think I was telling him, I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, people think that just because someone's an athlete and is making like multi-million, you know, has a multi-million dollar salary that they're not human beings and people don't treat them with respect. And, you know, we've seen this over and over again. A lot of people feel like athletes should just play and not say anything or not have any feelings. And that's not true. At the end of the day, they're people. And that's why I say it's important to have empathy for someone. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean you can't ask them. That doesn't mean you can't ask them tough questions. You know, I'm not saying that, oh, you know, don't ask Lori Lightfoot anything, you know, just be nice to her. You have to ask tough questions, but there's a way of doing it. And there's a, there's a proper way of doing it. And there's like a wrong way of doing it. Yeah. The, the bottle that uh, Romano is alluding to was thrown by a fan of the Boston Celtics at uh, Kyrie Irving, who used to play for the Celtics. Now he plays for the Nets. Popcorn was thrown on West, Russell Westbrook. Uh, John Morant's, parents were subjected to racial a racist taunting in utah uh, the list goes on and on i think uh, with people returning to uh nba arenas uh just a lot of maga poison has seeped in to the culture of sports uh and i i appreciate that the nba has a uh they're just not tolerating it because uh, it's just completely unacceptable in my humble opinion uh, all right, let's move on from Naomi Osaka and the press. Although I have to say that, wait, wait, before I lose, we, it's, this is one of my favorite little riffs I'll share with you. Every movie or TV show I see where reporters are assembled, they always look like an unruly mob of like locusts. I just saw this in mayor of East, even mayor of East town, some schlumpy town in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, the press corps, when mayor comes out of the car, mayor, <laughs> did, the hub, did you kill him? Did you kill him? It's just like, <laughs> my God damn, man. You were, there was more people in the press in mayor from East town than there was in the town itself. Mick was saying, how do they get so many people from the press? Like, do they have that many media outlets in that small town? <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, they love doing that scene where somebody gets out of a car and there's just a horde of angry, nasty, heartless reporters screaming questions out. <laughs> it's like, come on, Hollywood, give us a break, man. You always make the re reporters look bad in every single movie. They're always the ones all like, crowd them. <laughs> anyway, I had to get that off my chest. All right, uh, let's move on. And... Uh, I'm going to uh, bring up the subject. Uh, you sent me a very funny uh, uh, text. It <laughs> had me laughing out loud. So I did the story in the reader, column in the reader, uh, where I took my beloved lefties to task for pretending that uh, anti-Jewishness does not exist in the world. Uh, and I don't know. I've never heard of that before. Uh, yeah, duh. <laughs> and so in passing, I noted that just from my experience, just as a guy walking through life, uh, that the group, I was talking about like gross generalizations about a group where you take like something one person does and turn it into the entire like action of all groups. So like Ramana's on, classic one is Ramana talks about uh, a, a Muslim who does act of terror. All Muslims are doing act of terror. So I said the group that is 
The most vilified in this way are black Americans, followed by Jews and then Muslims. It, this was like one sentence in this longer. Ramana, boom. Uh-uh. Muslims are number two. Jews are three. Let's have a big debate on this one, uh, Ramana. Who's more hated in this country by the, the most Americans, Jews or Muslims? Go. Oh, Muslims for sure. I know you're going to say anti there's anti-Semitism and I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not someone who is like, oh no, there's no anti-Semitism. Um, but Islamophobia is treated like at least people when it comes to anti-Semitism, we know what the, you know, the microaggressions are, what things are said about Jewish people, like what things are said about Muslim people, like people don't even know that it's offensive. They'll like say things and, you know, at least at least there are movies about anti-Semitism. There's no movies about Islamophobia. It's it's, it's kind of considered, um, you know, that's just part of culture. Like if Barack Obama was Jewish, I'm not saying that if Barack Obama had like Jewish um, fathers, like if he had like, a Jewish father and a Jewish stepfather, I don't think he would have to go to the lengths, you know, that Barack Obama had to do where he's like, I'm not a Muslim. Don't worry. I'm not a Muslim. You know, it was just, it was just like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm Christian. You know, I love Jesus. And by the way, Muslims love Jesus too. But it's like, he, like, I felt like he had to go out of the way to prove that he wasn't Muslim. I just, I think that, I think there would be enough of an outcry if he was, if, if he was, you know, embarrassed to be like, you know, from a Jewish background or not embarrassed, but it would have to feel like he'd have to hide it to be politically viable. So I don't know. And you probably, and I, I, you know, the, when I read your column, it was pretty interesting when you talked about how when you're in a group of people and, you know, people probably don't know that you're Jewish and they'll blurt out something about being a Jewish person. And I can understand that because when I go to India, that happens to me. Like if I'm with a group of people, especially if they're educated, they don't think a Muslim can be that educated. Some people have that stereotype. So I would be, I could be in a group of people. I don't say my name. And then all of a sudden someone will say something really Islamophobic. That's happened to me in India. And then I have to say something, you know, I feel like my face getting red. And then I'm like, hello, I'm Muslim. So I do, I do understand and I do sympathize with, um, you know, Jewish Americans. But I still think I, I'm, not, I'm not playing the, you know, game who gets treated worse. But I, I, I do think that, um, you know, Muslims are kind of vilified more than I think Jewish people as a whole. What the point I was, the larger point I was making uh, is that, we are exposed. I'm not the only one. We're exposed to uh, like prejudice and bigotry all the time. Absolutely all the time. You cannot go through the, your rounds of your daily life really without hearing some kind of bigoted remark. And sometimes yeah. it's directed at uh, black people. And sometimes sometimes it's like like uh, uh, misogynistic, directed at women. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's directed at Jews etc. and so forth. Uh, and it's just something that we absorb. And I, I'm just thinking about myself just like in the course of my day. And, you know, do you, every time you hear a bigoted remark, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to just ignore it, just walk away, make a joke about it or challenge the person? Uh, you know, if you're, if you're challenging a person and you're in a bar and they're drunk, maybe that's not the best idea because then it gets belligerent. I've gone both ways with this. I've made, I've challenged, and then that really turned nasty. Uh, I've walked away. Um, I just walked away from one the other day, not too long ago, a, a bigoted remark about Jews. 
And I don't think the guy even thought he was, I think he thought he was making a joke. Uh, and so my, my leisure point was to, like for the left, when it comes to dealing with attitudes toward uh, Israel, to think that there's no anti-Jewish sentiment that somehow or other creeps in, to act like that just the, that very suggestion is outrageous. And I'm like, what world do you live in? Like, how could you not reflect on what you probably heard at your Thanksgiving table from some drunken uncle last year? And that was the point I was making. And uh, I hear, but you're, you're absolutely correct. It's like, you're, you're right. You may be right that uh, actually people feel more free to, to rip uh, Muslims, but it's, um, I, but maybe the, what I was saying is uh, that there's uh, not as many like open Muslims at the bowling alley where I go to so that they're not going to say it directly to them. Do you get what I'm saying? So uh, anyway, that's, that's the point I was making in the course of a, in the course of a day or life. Yeah. And you probably hear it because you're Jewish and I hear it because I'm Muslim, right? Like sometimes well, people will make jokes and then, you know, they'll be like, ah, you know, and then, you know, they'll say things like, well, you're not like the other Muslims or you're like a cool Muslim. And so like, what is that supposed to mean? Like, as opposed to a normal Muslim, you know, so it's like, it is offensive. And I have friends who are practicing, you know, on different levels. And like, even my friends who aren't even that practicing, like, you know, they get really upset when they hear something Islamophobic and it's, it's, it's hard. It's because it's like, we're, we've been vilified, you know, I grew up, I, I was born in the early 70s. Nobody knew who Indian people were. So nobody knew, you know, when the first time I, any most Americans and from my generation heard of Muslims with the, was it the Iran hostage situation. Then they were confused, like, why I was brown and not Iranian. And it's like there was so much confusion about who I was. And 9-11 made things different in the sense that, you know, the vilification just kind of went from there. So... I don't know. I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned um, Israel and Palestine and how, you know, the anti-Semitism. And I, I think differently where people, it's like for the longest time, people couldn't say anything pro-Palestinian because then you were considered anti-Semitic if you said anything against Israel. So a lot, I think for the first time in a long time, people are saying things like, hey, you can criticize Israel, but you don't have to be anti-Semitic about it. Of course, it doesn't mean you're anti-Semitic. So I, I I'm with you on that one. And it's it, see, it's a really tricky thing because someone wants to make a, a legitimate criticism of Israel bombing Gaza, which I, I mean, I'm just, we, we don't usually talk about international politics on the show, but when I'm looking at the, I follow, uh, just by reading the newspaper, see in Israel, they're moving Netanyahu out or they're threatening or they're hoping or God, that's a crazy democracy they have there. But the point is, uh, I think everybody has come to the conclusion, whether they'll state it openly or not, that Netanyahu ginned up that last conflict, uh, to like in a Trump like move to keep himself in office in power. So he would not be prosecuted. That's my personal belief, just based on what I read in the newspaper. So how could you in any way, justify his reign. I completely agree with my leftist brothers and sisters when they criticize uh, Israel. Again, the point that where they go and take that is the next step and they go, that, <laughs> uh, you know, there's no anti-Semitism among our ranks. I'm like, come on. Look, just anyway, I've heard, I, made my, I make my point pretty much all the time on the show on that one. Uh, I like to give my lefty. I think lefties can be Islamophobic too. So, 
and they don't know it. That's the thing. I, I, well, like you were saying, I don't think they think certain things are offensive. And that's how we're talking about the Salman Rushdie thing. Whoa. And, you know, saying things like, you know. So talk, well, okay, I think you, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just saying that people don't really know Muslims well enough to know what's offensive and what isn't. And so it's just like everything, you know, the people say things left and right and they don't realize what they're saying is offensive or it's okay to be offensive to Muslims because we don't know what we're talking about. We're uncivilized and terrorists. So, you know, when you get, when you're going to get painted those words, it's just easier for people to dehumanize you, I guess. Very good. All right, let's uh, move on from this debate, which I'm sure uh, we'll do a ranking as the months goes on. Who's more disliked in the United States of America, Muslims or Jews? But I, I, I do agree. I, I do agree with you that African Americans have it the hardest. I will agree. Oh my God! It's like yeah. yeah, and I just I feel compelled just to point the obvious out. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I know you feel the same way, Romana. Uh, but yeah, come on, guys. This is Let's be clear about our whole history here, which folks try to ignore as much as they can. All right, let's move on to some local news. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, is now uh, two years in, and um, they just had a poll the other day that came out. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, roughly 48, I think it was 48%, close to 50% of Chicagoans that were uh, surveyed in this poll uh, think she's doing a good job. And uh, another high per uh, percentage of them think she's honest and truthful. <laughs> I can't even say these things with, without laughing. I apologize, Romana. Uh, I personal opinion is that she's an improvement over Rahm Emanuel uh, and Richard M. Daly. But in my humble opinion, that bar is awfully low, so I'm really not saying much. That's like saying someone's a better dancer than me. I'm a terrible dancer. So, uh, I express myself a lot on Lori Lightfoot. Uh, your thoughts on the job Lori Lightfoot has done and her popularity with Chicagoans? I don't. I thought her popularity would be less than fifty percent, but I guess fifty percent isn't that great. Um, I don't know. I, I I think it's a hard job. I'm not going to say that it's an easy job to be the mayor of Chicago, and especially during the pandemic, but. There are a lot of things that she promised, including, you know, the civilian police board, um, the elected school board, um, which, by the way, this, you know, the state legislature just, you know, passed over the last week. Um, just, I don't know. I think a lot of people are disappointed in her from what I've seen. Um, she seems to have, um, she seems to get very sensitive to any sort of tough questions and seems to not take criticism very easily. And I think as a leader, you have to learn how to do that and just kind of learn to work around that. So I don't know. I thought, I thought it would be a little less than that, but I guess 50% isn't that great either. But yeah, I think people might think that she's a slight improvement from Rom, but a lot of people, what I hear is they think that she's just like Rom. Well, I, I can tell you right now, she's not just like Rom. And my, and I, having, I'm a Romologist, having studied Rom, and a, a little bit of a Lightfootologist. I don't have had as much time to study Lori Lightfoot as I did Rom, uh, but I don't believe she's just like Rom at all. Uh, I think they're. I just don't think they're. I, their worldview is similar. Uh, how they run the city, and they uh, they're de they're centrist Democrats. I mean, what that's what they are. Uh, 
And so they're very protective of what the well-to-do in the city, you know, and they want to make sure that Chicago continues to quote unquote grow in that area. And of secondary importance is, in my humble opinion, what happens in poor neighborhoods. And so I guess there are some parallels there, but I just feel like uh, in temperament, they're different and uh, in just uh, just the way they go about their their jobs, I think they're they're different. So I don't know. I I, I think it's just a slight improvement over Ron. But the, these hacked emails that uh, we've been talking a lot about on the show, and uh, we had Tommy Schubert from the Sun Times on uh, to take a victory lap because he's done a lot of great uh, reporting based on the hacked emails, which you probably edited those stories. Um, reveal a side of Lori Lightfoot uh, that you know, uh, is a little off-putting. And that is the side where behind the scenes, they talk one way and uh, then publicly they talk another way. And then generally when I say, point this out, the instinctive reaction of Chicagoans is, well, Ben, that's just how politicians are. They're deceitful. And so I just feel as though, Ramana, really, that's Chicago. The, the mentality of Chicago is you just tolerate corruption. You just tolerate deceit. You tolerate arrogance. You tra- tolerate bullies. And the response is always the same. Well, that's how they, everyone is, Ben. <laughs> so, so what are we, okay. So is that it? We just raise the white flag. Everybody's going to be deceitful. Everyone's going to be a bully. Everyone's going to be arrogant. I don't know. I struggle with this, Romana. Your thoughts. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. Um, I just, I do, I do think the criticism is warranted um, against Lightfoot. Um, I don't think she gets a pass, but I do think, I do think that a lot of people thought it would be a lot different with her in power. They, you know, they saw her as a progressive and a, a lot of people point out that she never was a progressive, but they saw her running on this progressive platform and they had expected more. Yeah. Well, uh, now we're being told, oh, that's just promises that politicians make. <laughs> uh, so just she's going to break them because that's what politicians do. And then life goes on. And 50% of the people see Chicago say, okay, so it makes sense to me. All right. You uh, sent me a text. You gave me a homework for a change. And you introduced me to a congressman named Ted Lou, who has some interesting attitudes about how we distribute a uh, vaccine. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Go ahead. Okay, so Ted Lieu, um, I think he's, I think he's this, let me, let me make sure I'm, I'm identifying him correctly to you. Um, he is, I believe he's in, he's a member of Congress and he's from California and he tends to be very left. But yesterday Correct. he um, had a tweet about uh, the global vaccines, then the distribution and said that he's, he basically insinuated that it should be based on, um, you know, should be distributed based on whoever our allies are. And he just said he disagreed with, you know, others, you know, handling the passing out of the vaccines. And he said that um, this is what his tweet said. He said, I strongly disagree with the Biden administration on the global vaccine rollout. We should help our allies first instead of letting a third party decide where the vaccine should go. Since there are not enough vaccines, should we help India or Iran? We should help India first. And I don't know, I had to respond to the tweet and I kind of quote tweeted him and I said, never understood the American need to shade everyday Iranians over and over again. And I, I feel like this is, well, this is go, going back to what we, the Islamophobia we're talking about. It's like so easy to vilify a nation 
because based on their government. And India, if anybody follows India, I'm an Indian. I'm of Indian descent. My parents are from India. And India's government has been very Islamophobic. So just because they're allies doesn't mean that they're like the best, they're like the best example of, you know, who, who, the best best example of the governments in the world. Like Saudi Arabia is an ally too. They kill, you know, the leaders there killed the journalists there. So, you know, it's like this attitude, like just because we don't like the government or they're not quote unquote our friends, the people aren't deserving of vaccines. I mean, people can look at our country and look at our government and the things that our government has done and think that we're not deserving of a lot of things either. And there are a lot of people who support Trump. So are you saying that they're not deserving of the vaccine? I mean, this is a health crisis. And if we're not all getting the vaccines, it can affect all of us detrimentally. It doesn't matter if they're Iranian or if they're Indian. Everybody needs a vaccine. So I don't know. I just I was personally kind of offended by that kind of attitude by someone who espouses to be someone on the left. And, you know, he is usually he's usually I probably agree with his politics more than I don't, but I, I saw that tweet and it just kind of touched a nerve in me. Well, I would just, uh, as I always do at this moment, point out that he's more uh, a liberal than a leftist. Yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's not a, he's not he's not a member of the squad, I guess. Yeah, he's not a squad, right? He's not a squadron member, uh, and he's not a Bernie Sanders uh, socialist. He is your classic Democratic left uh, liberal, uh, which is a distinction that I like to uphold. Yeah, no, I thought it was, um, uh, I'm with you. I, I, at some point, can we just, uh, can we just put the politics aside and treat, uh, you know, a health crisis as a health crisis that affects people? You're right. And your point is so well taken, like blaming Iranians for their government, blaming someone in India for the politics of their government, Blanketing, blaming anybody in a country. That's like blaming you or me for what Trump did. Exactly. We didn't vote for him. I I spoke out against him. But in a way, I kind of am. As a member of this country, we had this horrific nationalist, white supremacist, wacko running our country, grifter. And so that's... I mean, am I responsible for that? I don't know. Is it, so is some ordinary guy in Tehran responsible for what his country does? I don't think so. So I, I'm, I'm, I disagree with uh, the liberal congressman from California. And sometimes when I see liberals uh, and Dems, they, it's like they're, Biden used to do this. They're bending over backward to like show they're tough too. You know what I'm saying? Like they, yeah. they got a little MAGA in them as well. And I don't, I don't buy into that at all. All right, uh, let's close with uh, Romana's recommendations. And what are you uh, going to uh, recommend today, Romana? Um, well, I finished Mayor of Easttown. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I, I, I did your homework, and I did watch the Tina Turner documentary on Netflix last week, and I did like it. Um, well, I was reading about um, this show. It, it's about a punk rock band that consists of Muslim women. It was made in England. It's on the Peacock Network. Um, so I had a trial for the Peacock Network to watch the John Gacy um, documentary, which was made by a former colleague of yours. And now I'll probably have to do some sort of trial or I'll tell Mick to get a trial for this Peacock channel to watch the show. It's, the show is called We Are Lady Parts. 
And I also saw um, the trailer for Anthony Bourdain's uh, movie. It's, you know, Anthony Bourdain sadly had taken his own life a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. I was a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain because I love traveling overseas. And he had a great, you know, his travel series were always so awesome and really cool. And we're, you know, we we're just talking about Iran. He would go to different countries that most Americans would never go to because they've been vilified by our government. And he would really do a good job in humanizing, you know, individuals. And he did a better job than most other people could do. And a lot of people from these cultures would say that, you know, he was very respectful of other people's cultures. And he was like kind of like this cool New Yorker. And he would, you know, he was very brash, but he was also very warm. And so I'm, I've always been a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain. And so there's this movie about his life. It's called Roadrunner. And it's like a film about him, his, him and his life. So that's coming out in July, but they had a trailer um, yesterday that came out. So those are two things I'm looking forward to watching. Um, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think I should watch? What are your assignments? Wait, time out. So is that a, a, a documentary? It's a, it's a documentary, but it's going to be coming out, I think, on HBO Max and maybe in theaters. So you can watch it in the theater, too, if you want to. Then. Okay. Uh, I have a confession to make. I am utterly obsessed uh, as I believe your husband is with uh, NBA playoffs. Oh yeah. And the TV every night has been tuned to basketball. Uh, I watch, this is a little embarrassing to, to reveal up to three hours of basketball will be on maybe two and a half hours. Like last night I watched the Lakers Suns game and a portion of the game that preceded it, uh, the trailblazers versus the nuggets. So I'm not watching any TV shows. I haven't watched a movie I'm starting to wonder maybe <laughs> maybe I need help because <laughs> uh, I've been really watching a lot of basketball and enjoying it. So I've been really falling down on the recommend recommending uh, shows. Yeah, Mick has too. Yeah, I know because whenever I text him, he's watching the same exact thing. Yeah, he's uh, eating dinner in front of the TV and I'm eating dinner at the kitchen table. And he asked me if I mind and I'm like, that's fine. I'll do my own thing and text my friends while you're sitting there watching the game. And, you know, he makes commentary. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I have no interest. But, yeah, I'm sure, I, I like basketball, but I'm not someone who watches it. Well, maybe you'll uh, start paying attention when it gets to, like, finals. And this is – we're only in the first round. Uh, but I did watch Mayor of Easton. Uh, and um, I have to say that uh, I thought it was a really stupid show, but I was utterly obsessed with it and uh, enjoyed the ride. And it's just sort of my attitude about TV shows in general. More often than not, uh, Romana, they're not worth all the time we spend watching them. But the high of watching them and the moment of watching is it's just a nice, enjoyable moment, a diversion from everything. So it's worth it. And then when it's all over, I go, why did I do that? Why did I watch? So, and I got to give a shit out, uh, sh shout out uh, to Kate Winslet. Uh, gotta, even though I'm a Donald Trump like generally in my attitudes about uh, Brits getting all the roles, she did a great job in that show. So there you go. Yeah, I think if it was in lesser, if if it was an actress that wasn't as good as Kate Winslet, and I thought the actors in general, all the people playing off against her were really great too. So I don't think I think if if there was a lesser actress in Kate Winslet, I think the even though we said the show was kind of ridiculous and you saw the ending, I, I said that no way a 13 year old kid can pull a body. I don't know. Maybe there's some strong, strong 13 year old kids There are some things that kind of, you know, 
was like, no way that never would happen. But I do, I do think the acting really helped the show and I enjoyed it. There's, there's actually talk about people loved it so much that there's talk that there's going to, you know, they, they, they weren't planning on doing a second season, but it was so successful that there may be a second season. Mayor too. Let me just say that here's the other thing. When, when you really closely watch one of these shows and you put your full powers of critical thinking, which you very rarely use on stuff that really matters, like, I don't know, public policy, but you put it on a TV show, you really see the, the flaws in the logic and the plotting. And in Maritown, uh, I keep calling it Maritown because I just take the mayor and the town and put it together. Uh, so in, uh, in Mayor of Easttown, there, there were like two giant flaws and I, you already gave away uh, the ending in a way. Oh, uh, sorry for anybody who hasn't watched it. See, yeah. <laughs> but I think everybody has at this uh, point who is watching it. Yeah, and at this point. Uh, but, like, the whole thing about the gun is so ridiculous. So she, the big piece of evidence that Mayor, uh, their in, in, investigator gets is when this older fellow tells her that he didn't, discovered his gun was missing. Uh, and then from that, she figures out who did the murder by looking at a video of who of the shed where the gun was taken. And she sees the person who took the gun and she goes, that's who did the murder. OK, so that's the big aha moment. Well, it turns out the gun was only missing for like two hours from that shed that the kid, whoops, the person took the <laughs> gun, did the dirty deed, brought the gun back to a. How did that old geezer get up in the middle of the night, go out to the shed, and see the missing <laughs> guy? I, my wife and I are like, "Hey, man, that, that is a flaw." That's definitely that's a definitely good catch because I didn't even think about that. I thought it took like a day before he, but I was like, "Why would you even like noticing the gun? Why would you notice that? Like in that two hours? Like you're right. Like why would you? That's why was that something you notice unless you sit there and take the gun out every like couple hours and cradle in your hands." Yeah. So generally when I raise subjects like that, uh, it's not dissimilar to the reaction people give me when I point out like our mayor is a bully and she doesn't tell the truth. They go, everyone's like that. So when you raise an objection to a plot in a movie, they go, Ben, it's just a movie. <laughs> okay. All right. Whatever. <laughs> Can't win any way you look at it. Um, all right. Ramon, I want to thank you very much for taking time out and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. All right. That's the great Ramon Hussein. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Thank you.